I thank you, Jasperlin, for that spirited reading. If I could encourage all of you to go ahead and turn to the passage Jasperlin just read, Isaiah 41, 21 through 29. And if you're engaged with us online, and I would like to encourage you as well to pull out your Bible and uh, relaunching as we go through this passage in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 21 through 29. So yeah, this, this past week, we had the pleasure of uh, interacting face-to-face, encouraging and being blessed by fellow believers in Christ from Adana, Turkey. And although there's a myriad of experiences that I could speak of regarding their visit, I always find it interesting, the, the similarities and the differences uh, with people from different cultures, ours to theirs, theirs to ours. But particularly this time when I was offered an apricot pit to eat and I, I didn't realize they were simply showing me that it was, you know, still in the shell until I crunched down on it in my mouth. <laughs> I think I broke another tooth. <laughs> but thankfully they, they gave me a napkin so I could spit it out and we all chuckled at my expense. <laughs> but often these cultural differences and similarities they're they're helpful um, in being able to clarify what is basic about human nature things that are consistent across cultures and boundaries and what is constructed through social conventions I find these similarities and differences also helpful in identifying American idols I don't mean those pop culture singers that are on the show but that show does kind of point to and, and enlighten us as far as our disconnect and confusion about what an idol is. We often seem to interchange the word icon with idol. Even if we uh, look up on dictionary.com, it states that an icon can be a person or a thing that is revered or idolized. And yet we look up idolized and it speaks of devotion worship, blind adoration, and the ancient practice of idolatry, a.k.a. statues. So even in our contemporary mindset here in the U.S., we often hear of idols being, you know, Sunday football and the like, and idols are described as things that replace God in our hearts. But this really isn't the biblical view of idols and how they were used in ancient times and isn't really what Isaiah has in mind here in chapter 41. An idol, it did not replace God, but was used as a means to control God, to control one's circumstances. You read through the the history of Israel's kings and prophets, and you'll see time and again that when a prophet spoke and the outcome was to be not in favor of the king or not in the favor of his trusted advisors, there was talk of putting the prophet to death. That's because he was not speaking what they wanted to hear. They wanted a prophetic utterance or a, a divination that would bless them despite the status of their own devotion to God. Time again, God has had to speak to his people to tell them to quit going after idols. And this isn't because, you know, wearing some trinket around the neck or decorating their yards with statues was fun. No, it's because they wanted God's power to be channeled through their own will, their own desires, 
their own choices in life, their own opinions. Idols afforded them that luxury, or so they thought, they hoped. So today in Isaiah 41, uh, we get to see God talking directly to idols, asking them to make a case for their legitimacy. And the one thing that I hope that we can glean from our time together in this passage in Isaiah is that to choose an idol over Christ is to choose nothing over everything. So let's dig into it, shall we? Noting four reasons why to choose an idol over choosing Christ is to choose nothing over everything. The first is that idols have no discernment. Idols have no discernment. Take a look with me back at verse... uh, 21 and 22 here in chapter 41. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Continuing in the court motif from the preceding passage we read of God saying let them bring them who's them in verse 1 of chapter 41 God addresses the coastlands then says let them approach let them speak let us together draw near for judgment then in verse 29 speaking of them God says their metal images are empty wind a wind in the wild a dusty air moving about for no reason other than to pick up the sand and drop it down again. So God begins to address these idols directly. Now, as we go along this morning, uh, I want you to picture in your mind God standing there with, with a bunch of statues and he's asking them questions. And you can begin to pick up on a, on a tone of sarcasm and the disdain God has for these statues, for these idols. And he makes his thoughts clear on them. However, even before he begins to address them directly, we can catch a whiff of his pungent indignation when he said, let them bring them. The second them in that sentence refers to the idols. The first them refers to the people, presumably those who trust in the idols. They had to carry in their gods. These idols cannot even come on their own volition when the God of the universe calls them forward. He says, carry them in and have them tell us what is to happen. Tell us what has happened. Tell us, you idols, your discernment of events past, present, and future. Do you see it? God standing around these statues, inquiring of them wisdom and discernment, saying, speak. But they cannot. And God knows it. Which is why in verse 24, he says, you idols are nothing. You are no thing. You are not. Idols have no discernment. It's easy to see why idols, statues, are nothing, but we humans, at least here in the West, we lie to ourselves in thinking that we're done with idolatry, that we're enlightened and beyond such superstitions. No, we've simply crafted different idols, 
idols that no longer look like statues, but still serve the purpose of giving human desire a precedence over God's will. We take good things created by God and we transmute them into ultimate things to feel as if we're in control. Here's how this has looked for me in my life. I have a a deep-seated longing for a place to belong. I have felt it all my life. I have felt it all through my childhood. And for me... It, it, it affected how much of my outlook on the world was and how much I viewed my place in it. And when I was 17, that place of belonging became the church. But when my church split apart, my place of belonging became the purpose in preaching to the church to make it strong. And then when that did not manifest the way I thought that it should, my place of belonging became my wife and my children my family as time went on I rightly assessed my responsibility in discipling my children but my family started to be for me uh, a church in and of its own a truer and better church here I could execute my passion and my purpose I could train up my kids to have an even greater impact than I could with myself I could teach my children what is genuine in the Bible and help them to discern for themselves things that were genuinely from and genuinely taught and things that were just cultural misrepresentations. And as they got older, I, I made home worship presentations. <laughs> and we used, we used this. It's a, a portable communion set that my wife got me when I was ordained at a different church. And we use this in our home to have communion with one another. And not that I now think that these were bad things. No, they were healthy, good things to do as a family, to worship together, to read the Bible together, to pray together. But for me, they took on a different meaning. They took on a different purpose. I had an arrogance and a pride, uh, a sense of a control issue in that my place of belonging was going to be what I thought it needed to be. And really, if you think about it, if I'm a byproduct of my environment, my experiences, if I'm a, a byproduct of my own family and my upbringing and, and my school that I partated, partook in. And now, even now, being 42 years old and I'm still trying to figure out what's wrong with me, how in the world am I going to be able to set everything right for my children in the 18 to 20 years? <laughs> Probably more like 15 or 16, right? I don't know how much time do we have to shape them before they decide to start doing things for themselves. 12 years, 10 years. Even though my intentions to provide a solid foundation of faith for my children, I realized that my own discernment in doing that is limited. I needed the help of a community of faith. 
I needed the help of Harvest Kids teachers and elders and small group members. I realized the more I relied on building up the narrative of my family church, the less discerned I was becoming. God said, an abomination is he who chooses you idols. Choosing an idol is to become like an idol, nothing. To choose an idol over Christ is to choose nothing over everything. But the shift is simple and swift from trusting in the righteous right hand of God to trusting in that which is crafted by our own hands. Things we convince ourselves we can control. Personal development for career promotion. Activist grandstanding to promote a just cause. Financial investments for a secure future. Community organizing for political power and influence. And it's not that these things are inherently evil. They're, they're not. Family is not evil. The Bible says a lot about family. And it says a lot about those who, who hide and hoard what they are given financially instead of investing it. But who's directing our involvement in all that? Where is the cause of Christ in it? A friend of mine posted on social media the other day. He, he doesn't know I'm going to say this. So I'll keep them anonymous, but I'm proud of them for it. And however, since it's on Facebook, it's kind of out there anyways. <laughs> but he said, my agenda is the gospel. Man, I'm proud of that dude. And what a powerful statement. My agenda is the gospel. That'll preach now. What is your agenda, Harvesticator? Can you say my agenda is the gospel? Idols have no discernment. And the more we pursue American idols, the less capable we become in spotting truth as well. Idols have no discernment, but they also have no power. That is our second reason today for why choosing idols over Christ is choosing nothing over everything. Idols have no power look with me at verse 23 tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified God looking at these statues says do something there's a line from the movie Incredibles, uh, which is a, a movie about a family with, with uh, a family of superheroes that have been politically forced to stop using their powers anymore. But there's a scene uh, where this, this little neighbor boy is, is kind of hanging around and he, he sees the dad who has super strength grab this car, his car with his bare hands and pick it up. And then later in the movie, at the end of the movie, this little boy is just hanging around and, and the dad's being like, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? And he says, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. Do something. God says to these statues, do something amazing. 
predict the future bless those who worship you beyond their ability to produce or terrify even us with your destructive fury rescue your people from the oppression and injustice rescue your people with from enslavement with plagues and parting of the sea bring about a flood to cleanse the earth from the oppression and injustice of mankind be a bringer of good news by manifesting yourself as a human to remove humanity's sin and taking their place something do something as it is god says to these idols these statues your works are less than nothing less than a whisper less than a sigh less than a wind in the wilderness There was a situation in Babylon where Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of in Babylon, he interpreted his dream. In fact, old Nebi asked his magicians and visors not only to interpret the dream, but to first tell them what his dream was. See, he knew that if he told them their dream, that they could simply just make up whatever kind of story they wanted to back it. But he wanted them to tell him his dream before they said it. He wanted them to show that they had power. They couldn't. But it enters Daniel, who does not rely on his own wisdom, but on God, and receives from Yahweh not only the interpretation, but what old Nebi had in fact dreamed. God is doing the same with these idols. calling them to bring their proofs to tell what is to come that God may recognize them as having power God says to these statues you are nothing your work is less than nullity the wind whistles by your lifeless existence depositing sand at your feet to bury you in a history long forgotten Can I tell you all that I'm, I'm proud of you? <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm proud of this church. I've been a part of an unhealthy church when its pastor left and it imploded. And the love that you all have for each other is genuine. It may feel like at times that, that small group is, is difficult or it even feels unfulfilling. It may feel that serving in Harvest Kids at times feels like glorified babysitting. It, it may feel like work in the booth or on the tech side of things is, is frustrating. It may even feel that partaking in a, in a deacon board or even the elder board is, is contentious and time-wasting. But I've seen you all over the years. And when a brother or sister in Christ is in need, y'all are all in. <laughs> y'all are all in. When I was a youth at that church that imploded, I heard many side conversations. Leaders of the church bickering about other leaders of the church. One time I was invited to go visit a family in the church and was instructed on how dangerous this visit might be that they let their children do whatever including uh, drinking and drugs and it very well could be walking into a situation where demonic forces 
could be agitated by our presence and this family or anyone else there could lash out in violence. I went with my heart set and prepared to die for my Lord that day. And when we arrived, the mom was in the kitchen visiting with another church member. And her kids, along with some friends, were playing video, video games in the basement, drinking sodas. Sometimes, even as Christians, we can get sideways when we focus too much on idols of control. This prediction of violence did not stem from the love of the gospel, but seems to be more in line with idols of the heart. There was no power in that prediction other than to cause my own restlessness. Idols have no power. Yet those who promote them claim they do. And God has great disdain for the lie of idolatry. And God says to those who choose idols are an abomination. Ouch. That one stings, doesn't it? But that's because those who choose idols become like them, partaking in the lie and likewise are powerless. There's an interesting dynamic when it comes to idols as they have no power, but the more that we devote ourselves to them, the more that we look to symbols of prestige and articles of influence and, and items of adoration, the more power they seem to have over us. The idols themselves do no good or no harm, but when we act in their service, devoted to their ideology of control, then we can do harm. And any good we do through them is actually an extension of God's common grace to cause the sun to shine on the righteous and unrighteous alike. Many elevate humanity to a status that is improper and far exceeds our created purpose. But that does not mean that we do not have a place of position and power in this world. God created us to be the image of God and when we try to abdicate that responsibility to a statue, to an idol, to something we created ourselves, we relinquish the power God created us for. We choose nothingness over the word that births stars at the sound of his voice. Look, I get it. I'm a problem solver. I'm going to slip into a fix-it mode as soon as something goes awry. But I'm challenged by James. Hear what James teaches. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. How easy 
Is it to trust in our own hands first and then seek the Lord only if they fail? James says, if anyone's suffering, if anyone's sick, to let him pray. He's not saying don't get help or, or, or skip out on the doctor. No, he's saying start praying. Let the first one you turn to in times of trials and trouble be the Lord. Leave the idols behind. Our American healthcare can very well be the idol we seek after when we should first be consulting the one who invented our health that we seek to care for. First seek the Lord, then seek his church. And if you have to, yes, go to a doctor. Get some help. (laughs) My small group has been keeping me accountable for years now when I need help. That I need to reach out and ask instead of just trying to do it on my own. It's hard. Someone else could do something wrong. Involving others is is a messy business. I'll have to admit that, that I made a mistake or that I'm not up to the task myself in asking for help. But God designed us to live in community, and it's not good to be alone. Trying to problem solve and rely just on me and my family is idolatry and when I do that I miss out on the power of God moving through the people of God idols have no discernment idols have no power the Lord is looking at these idols and saying here I am speaking to myself because you are statues and your will, your works, your power is less existent than you are. Why would anyone invest their life into you? They would literally be choosing nothing. But when it comes to God, he does what he plans. That is our third reason for, choosing, for why choosing idols over Christ is choosing nothing over everything. God does what he plans. Look back with me at verse 25. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. God called the idols to give proof, but so far they've been silent and unable to answer. So God here switches from accusations against the idols to a comparison of his own power to exert his will. He told the idols to do something, to show that they're gods, and then God makes his own case for why he is. He said, I stirred up one from the north from the rising of the sun and he shall call upon my name and shall trample other nations like pots of clay and guess what he has come God stirred him up God willed it to be so God said this is what would happen and it happened do good or do harm indeed God can Jesus told his disciples not to fear those who can kill the body and not kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is the Father. But also, he encouraged them to know that the Father cares for us. 
and knows us so intimately that he has taken the time to count every hair on their head. Maybe, maybe he counted some of you a while back and, and we're going to call that good. <laughs> the Lord still loves you. This is because whoever Jesus receives, whoever receives Jesus' affection and influence in their life receives the affection and influence of the Father. This affection is not earned by us, but that does not mean that it does not cost us something. It costs us our idols, our own glory, our own honor. Jesus also said right after confessing how much the Father cares for us that if we deny Jesus before the people of this world, then Jesus will deny us before the Father. If someone continues to hold on to their idols, they continue to hold on to their control and deny Jesus his place as Lord and deny Jesus is alive in bodily resurrection even to this day, then they deny his gift of salvation. And they are left to the work and result of idols, which is nothing but death and rot in a forgotten wasteland. Idols that will one day be judged by God. Richard Mao, in his book, When Kings Come Marching In, has this to say about it. The Lord of hosts has a day against all these things, against the nations who brag about being number one, against racist pride, against the idealizing of human potential, against our self-actualization manifestos, against our reliance on missiles and bombs, against art and technology, against philosophy textbooks and country music records, against Russian vodka and South African diamonds, against trade centers and computer banks, against throne rooms and presidential memorabilia. In short, God will stand in judgment of all idolatrous and prideful attachments to military, technological, commercial, and cultural might. He will destroy all those rebellious projects that glorify oppression, exploitation, and the accumulation of possessions. It is in such projects that we can discern today our own ships of Tarshish and cedars of Lebanon, our own idols. Idols have no power, but God does what he plans. Jesus is very much a man of his word. If he said it, he will do it. Why then is it so easy to be self-reliant? Why is it so easy to slip into modes of control and manipulation? Why then is it so easy to trust in the systems of this world when Jesus is the faithful one and has promised to never leave us? When God does what he plans. What are his plans for you, Harvest Decatur? What does God intend to do through you at your workplace? What does God plan to do through you as you disciple your children? What is God aiming to accomplish through you in retirement? God had stirred up this one from the north, but what is he stirring in you? Where is he looking to send you with his gospel in tow? Into the local pantry? Into the inner city neighborhoods? Into mom's groups? 
into Turkey or other mission opportunities? Opportunities are there. We just saw in the video this morning an open invitation. How cool is it that a, a church from Decatur, Illinois has international connections with, with churches and people across the globe in Turkey to partner with churches located in the land of Paul's missionary journeys. In our text in Isaiah, God is contrasting himself with these idols. And it's clear from verse 24 that when we choose idols, we are choosing to be nothing, to have no discernment, to have no power. But when we choose Christ, when we choose his mission to live as Christ, then we choose the same power that was able to raise Christ from the dead. Harvest Decatur, God greatly desires for us to work for Christ in this community and in our world to partner in revealing his glory, that people will know that the Lord is God. Are we too busy with our idols to miss this great adventure with God? Or as C.S. Lewis put it, our desires are not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. God does what he plans. But he also says what he determines. That is our fourth reason this morning of why choosing idols over Christ is choosing nothing over everything. God says what he determines. Look with me at verses 26 through 27. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right. There is none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. God says what he determines. God is again contrasting himself with these idols. And the author of Isaiah has done a masterful job at drawing distinctions between the two. Now, it might not be apparent at first read-through, but there is a, a poetic chiasm employed here in verses 21 through 29, which is a literary device that a, a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. So if we're, as if looking into a mirror, if you take verse 21 and verses 28 and 29, they describe a court scene where the counsel is being given for judgment. And then 22 and 26 through 27 weigh judgment of proof regarding the discernment of events and directions. And then 23 and 25 weigh judgment of proof regarding execution of will or power. And then this leaves verse 24 to stand on its own, although accentuated by verse 29 as well. If these pairings were laid out in descend, ascending couplets, then you would see that they form an arrow with verse 24 being at the tip or the point. So what does this do for us as we read this passage? It lets us know that God is contrasting himself with the questions he asked the idols. 
He asks them to tell what has happened and discern the present. God has done that. It has been recorded and divinely preserved for us in what we now call the Bible. He has revealed himself in history and has spoken through the ages, not only saying what is happening and what did happen, but what will happen. It also lets us connect the contrast between verses 26 and 27 better. Who is declared from the beginning? God says, I have. Who has been right? God says, I have. These idols did not declare. They did not proclaim. None heard their words, but God's words were heard as he was the first to say to Zion. God's words are heard because he raises heralds of good news. God said in the beginning that there would be one to crush the serpent, the influencer contributing to the curse of humanity. Jesus, he came and is that long-awaited-for serpent crusher who now through him we can become a new humanity and transcend our idol-bound limitations Jesus also said that he would come back and fully restore this new humanity unto God and our created destiny. All done for, by, and because of Jesus. What better news is there to herald? God says what he determines. He determined we needed a Savior, and so he said one would come, and our Savior has come. God determined our Savior needs to return to heaven until the appointed time. So Jesus said he would go and prepare a place for you and will come again and will take you to himself that where he is, you may be also. God made known at the beginning what he determined to do at the end and declared good news to people. But these idols, these idols have been quiet. If I'm honest, there's a, there's a part of me that does not understand the ancient idolatry of statue worship. I don't fully understand the thought process and the rationalization behind crafting a statue and then believing somehow in making that image that is then imbued with divine presence. As if somehow uh, emblazing an item with an image of a cross makes it sacred or constructing a building and calling it a church makes it God's house and kept distinct from more common buildings like homes and workplace. But I do understand human desire for crafted symbols of power and control. But to fully believe that we make and then dictate what gods do is beyond me. And maybe that's the the transformation of the gospel at work in my life. As there was a time when my understanding of God was only cerebral and things like prayer were only used in a manipulative way and attempting to persuade God to move in my favor, give me something I want or, 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 or not let something happen that would be a natural consequence to my choices and actions. I'm a man of unclean lips. I was in sexual relationships before I could even drive a car. My girlfriend at the time was concerned with getting pregnant, and I told her that if we pray, 
God will hear us and answer our prayer. How twisted is that? If she were to have gotten pregnant and wanted to get abortion, uh, would I have been okay with that? I, I don't know. I'm not even sure I had thoughts on such things at that age. But could you imagine me as a father at 15 or 16 years old? I was barely figuring it out in my late 20s. <laughs> but we idolize sex in this America, don't we? We had a whole revolution about it. Our identities are to be wrapped up in it, but does this idol deliver on what it promises? With all the self-help books and the websites and the, the, the advice, all the, the divorces, marital affairs, and, and really the lack of commitment in, in marriage yet still engaging in sexual activity, it shows that this idol too has been quiet on what our created purpose actually is. Look at what God says in verse 28. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. God looks at our American idols these crafted symbols of power and control, and he calls them forth to prove themselves in accord and says, case dismissed. No counsel, no representation, no argument put forth by the opposing side, just silence, empty wind, dusty dirt floating around, landing on the best human hands can make. To choose idols over Christ is to choose nothing over everything. As the worship team comes to lead us in our final song, I would want us to hear the word of our Lord one other time this morning from Isaiah 41. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name, and he shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay, who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he's right. There's none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. 
their metal images are empty wind.